Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 36, 12th century life, magnates and churchmen. Today, we're going to finish off the life of William the Marshal and see how a household knight is converted into magnate. Then, we'll look at the second estate, the church. We left William then looking very well set with the young king. But the court of the young king, just like that of the real king, was a place of poison, politics and intrigue. And William's success had begun to make him a target for his courtly competitors. In 1181, Henry II held his Christmas court at Caen in Normandy. It was a glittering occasion, designed to rival the court of the French king in Paris. Henry the young king's wife Marguerite presided over the court, and everything seemed set for a good time. Then Henry the young king arrived. He was not a happy bunny, and William the Marshal, his constant companion, was nowhere to be seen, and Henry refused to speak to his wife. And soon the rumour began to spread that William had dared to have an affair with Marguerite. As soon as he heard this rumour, the marshal charged up to the court, denied everything vehemently, called for his accusers to stand out from the crowd and begged to be allowed to prove his innocence in a three-day tournament against any of his accusers, saying that his victory would be God's vindication of him. I have no doubt that his accusers were quite happy right where they were safely in the crowd and probably felt such a tournament would be more likely to be a vindication of William's strong right arm than of his innocence. It might have been a bit more convincing if William had challenged everyone to a wild flower-pressing competition. 
and the long and short is that no one came forward. William left in great distress and went on pilgrimage. The rumour could have been made up to drive a wedge between William and the young king. Or it could indeed simply be true. Either way, it worked. William spent an uncomfortable couple of years out of the young king's favour. Meanwhile, he was not in Henry II's good books either, since Henry seemed to think that William was one of the troublemakers egging his son on and turning him against him. So William feared being out of a job, and that his career was heading for a fall. And then in 1183, the young king died. Fortunately for William, his death also seems to have softened Henry II's views towards the young king's companions, and he agreed to retain William in his own household. So the fall had been avoided, and William was still in luck. William still had to earn his spurs, as it were. After joining the royal court, some of the fun goes out of William's life, and that seems fair enough. After all, what's a 40-year-old doing having fun? He should be working, damn it. So there were no more tournaments before old William. As we know, Henry and the Angevins were way more French than English. Anjou is their home, and their French possessions are even more extensive than their English lands. They're native French speakers, using English only when they have to, and that's rare enough. But amongst William and his companions in the household, there is evidence of a growing sense of Englishness that differentiates them from the rest of the Angevin court. Obviously, I accept the idea that a nation at this point in history is anachronistic. The Angevin Empire certainly wasn't a coherent unit, with one central coherent government and concept of nationhood. Not even England can be considered a nation-state at this time. All the Angevin territories were part of a collection of territories, each with its own people and customs, held together only in the person of the king. But there is clearly a sense of Englishness and English identity for all that. We've seen it before in the times of Offa and Alfred, with their conscious attempts to recognise and promote the sense of racial solidarity. But of course the Norman invasion had created a nobility that identified very much with the French rather than with the English. However, by the latter part of the 12th century, there's some evidence that the English aristocracy was beginning to see themselves as just that, English. Or at least, to see themselves as different to the Continentals. William the Marshal had been brought up entirely in England until he left to become a squire in Normandy, and many of the people in the royal court regarded him very much as English. English had acquired a reputation of being a bit of a backwater. It banned tournaments. And since Stephen had gone, it all seemed rather staid, peaceful and unfashionable, especially when compared to Paris. The English, it was said, were more fond of drinking and boasting than they were of fighting. They were provincial bumpkins. Throughout William's contemporary biography, the difference between the English knights and their continental counterparts are emphasised, and it rather confirms the integration of the Norman aristocracy into one English identity. As we said a few episodes ago, the chroniclers are also beginning to point out that it is now almost impossible to distinguish between Englishman and Norman, so slowly we're beginning to see the divisions healing or rather disappearing. The other thing that helps this process is the canonisation of Edward the Confessor, which is actively supported by Henry II and duly confirmed by the Pope in 1160. The Normans had always been rather sniffy about the series of odd Anglo-Saxon saints, and the suspicion that all he had to do was drop a hat in Anglo-Saxon England and someone would canonise you. The canonisation of Edward helps rebuild the Anglo-Saxon reputation, and will be really picked up by Henry II's grandson and made into a national cult. 
Meanwhile, of course, the English continued to flick the same superior attitude they suffered from the French onto the rest of the British Isles. It has to be said that the English saw the Irish, Welsh and Scots as lacking cultural and moral sophistication. They thought they were, in short, barbarians. Writers stressed the political decentralisation, brutality of war and improper forms of marriage of the rest of the British Isles. Some of this was generated and encouraged by the Church from the Pope down, eager to see Orthodox England stamp out divergent practices elsewhere in the British Isles. One author, for example, wrote of the Scots they had neglected the Lenten fast, consumed raw meat, given itself up to foulness and despised religion. And all this stuff, incidentally, was not one way. For example, the rest of the British Isles accused the English of hiding tails under their clothes. It's an odd insult. I've no idea where it comes from. And modern insults, I think, are rather more direct. But there you go. William the Marshal was now at the centre of power, working for the king. And through his work, he began to attract royal patronage. There's no doubt that he's still a small part of the royal court. But Henry then pays him for his work. And this is the breakthrough. His payback came in the form of the wardship of the 15-year-old John of Early, and then in 1187, the large royal estate of Cartmel in Lancashire, and even more excitingly, the wardship of Eloise of Lancaster. Now William has land. He's genuinely on the way up and has joined the club. Which leads me on to the How to Be a Successful Medieval Tyrant Guide. We've seen very recently good examples of kings well able to keep control. The two Williams and Henry I. And then one, Stephen, who completely lost control. And when we get back to our political story, we're going to see two kings in Henry II and Richard, who know exactly what they're doing, and one in John, who totally loses it. As we get into the modern era, the thing we'll start talking about is how effective central government structures are, their legislation, that sort of thing. Even under Henry I and the Anglo-Saxon kings, we've seen that there is an element of that. But really, we're still very much in a period where the major barons manage the kingdom on behalf of the king. The key to successful government is how you control your barons. And the biggest single lever available to the king is not the stick, but the carrot in the form of royal patronage. There's a revealing quote from Henry I's doctor, Petrus Alfonsi, who said, A king is like a fire. Get too close and you burn. If you are too far away, you freeze. It makes the point that English politics is court politics. The court was a constantly changing and competitive environment and could feel completely arbitrary. The contemporary and cynical commentator of the English court, Walter Mapp, commented that favour comes regardless of merit, arrives obscurely from unknown causes. At the top of the king's patronage kit bag was the grant of land from the royal domain particularly painful for the king since it was quite difficult to get back and was a finite resource. Or he could give away royal offices, either for life or for the family in perpetuity, with the opportunity for profit that these came with. Shrievelties are a particularly good example of that with a tax farming approach. What this means is that the king sets a certain income on a shire and gives the noble the right to collect the taxes. If the sheriff is efficient, he can collect more than this and pocket the difference. Next up, the king could give wardships, i.e. the control of a minor before they came of age and therefore came into their inheritance. This allowed the guardian to take the revenue from the ward's land and they could also sell the marriage of the ward to another noble. You will note the complete absence of any romance. About half of the wardships in this period are given away by the king for the purpose of patronage. 
And finally, the king can let people off paying taxes and dues. In 1130, the total amount that he gave away from a general tax was 23%, so the use of this device was pretty substantial. Once you'd received the royal favour, your rise could be meteoric. William is a great example of this. He started as a landless knight, and he will end up as the Earl of Pembroke and Regent of England. This doesn't count as any great social mobility, but it does mean that new families reach the very top table and keep moving around to an extent. Meanwhile, each noble then does exactly the same thing. They use their wealth to distribute patronage of their own to build a following. And this is precisely what William does over the next couple of decades. But just as it was easy to go up, so there was a very real danger of a dramatic fall. For example, the de Brose family were a major family when John came to the throne and were elevated still further by him. But William de Brose literally knew too much about the skeletons in the royal cupboard, i.e. about the death of Arthur of Brittany. And in 1208, the Brose family estates were seized by the king. The family fled to Ireland, so in 1210 John launched a full-scale invasion. William de Brose escaped to France, but his wife Matilda and one of his sons starved to death in a royal prison. All this potential for meteoric rise or catastrophic fall was not a good recipe for happiness. If you are looking for friendship, fun and laughter, court was no place to be. It was a hothouse of ambition and struggle, hidden under a superficial mask of pleasantry, where the prizes were enormous. Arnulf of Lisieux commented on the nobles at the court of Henry II that Anxious ambition dominates their mind. Each of them fears to be outstripped by the endeavours of the other, so is born envy, which necessarily turns immediately into hatred. And Walter Mapp again said, Greed, the lady of the court, incites us with so many sharp stings that laughter is completely removed by care. Thankfully for the king, there were no employee surveys in those days. And anyway, the point was that the king was looking for just the right level of uncertainty. Be too arbitrary like Stephen and John, and you risk revolt and chaos. Be too gentle, and equally like Edward the Confessor, you may be ruled by your overmighty subjects. Pain, fear, uncertainty, greed and political infighting were the keys to great government. Obviously, I exaggerate for effect, but you know what I mean. And all of this meant that when the king was absent, like Richard on crusade, or when there was a minority such as Henry III, the court went potty, and went into a maelstrom of faction fighting. And this was the world in which William the Marshal was now operating, the lucky lad. He turns up in films and stuff every so often does William, and has acquired the pattern of a kind of honest, bluff soldier bloke, adrift in a sea of evil court politics. Don't believe a word of it. William will have known well enough how to handle court politics. The time when kings changed could also be dangerous, of course, especially with such a fractious lot like the Angevins. If you manage the regime change game poorly, you could end up on the wrong side at the wrong time. And William might well have come unstuck with the death of Henry II. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Henry at the time was at war with his son Richard, who had teamed up with the French king Philip Augustus, and he was in full retreat and dying. 
In a famous incident, William was asked to cover Henry's retreat, to buy him time to get away. William ambushed Richard, along with a party of the royal household, and Richard was ridden down by the marshal. Richard cried out that he was unarmed, and that to kill him would be an evil deed, so the marshal cursed him and killed his horse instead. He was probably cursing himself when Henry died a couple of months later, but he was fortunate that despite a bit of ribbing, Richard was big enough to recognise the value of loyalty. And so Richard rewarded William with Isabel of Strigoi in marriage in 1189. Isabel was 17 to William's 42, and the daughter and only surviving child of Richard de Clare, Earl of Strigoi and Pembroke, known to history as Richard Strongbow. She was the heiress to massive estates in Wales and Ireland. Putting aside any modern views we might have about the lack of any consultation with Isabel, this was more than a bit of a triumph for William. Overnight, he was converted from a landless knight into one of the leading magnates of the country. He'd arrived. It was the big time bingo, the jackpot. The reign of Richard was a good time for the whole Marshall family, in fact, with honours heaped on William's brothers John and Henry, religious honours in the latter's case, and by 1199 William had also become the Earl of Pembroke and was one of the four regents during the absence of Richard on crusade. The history of William the Marshal from here on is part of the political history of England and we'll come across him frequently in the reigns of Richard and John. But briefly, William was to suffer at the hands of John as many barons did, a victim of John's mistrust and paranoia. But unlike so many others, William remained a staunch supporter of the king. Despite this, the rebellious barons understood the loyalty that drove William and they respected it. So when John died in 1217, William was the ideal choice as regent for John's son Henry, the man that both sides could trust. In 1219, William finally died at Caversham at the age of 72. The contemporary description of him as the perfect knight, in retrospect, seems only just and fair. Now, I realise I've rather rushed the last 20 years of William's life, but as I say, we'll meet William again when we get back to the history of the Angevins, so fear not. So why don't we spend a bit of time now on those who pray? The clergy. The clergy can be divided into regular clergy, that is monks essentially, and the secular clergy, i.e. priests, bishops, chaplains and so on. At the bottom of the church hierarchy were the clerks, those who had received the tonsure and therefore officially joined the club, but were not yet in orders, had not become a priest or any such like. By the 11th century, the basic structure of the English church had been established, pretty much as it is today. So parishes had been established, as had the dioceses, and the dioceses were split into archdeaconries and the archdeaconries into rural deaneries. The Norman period saw a steady growth in the number of churches and just like the Anglo-Saxon thane, each Norman lord would be expected to have his church. The village priest at the end of all this organisation was usually reckoned to be a member of the peasant community and life could be pretty hard for them. As such, the village priest hadn't been much disturbed by an inflow of Normans at the time of the conquest. The job was pretty much beneath the Normans. Most of the priest's parishioners would attend church just once a week on a Sunday, but would only take Holy Communion three times a year. And if the Lord was in attendance, he would be in the place of honour in the chancel, and all the hoi polloi would be relegated down to the nave. Despite the importance of God in medieval life, services could be pretty rowdy affairs, and one archbishop begged, Let every priest exhort his parishioners to turn their attention in church to prayer, not to shouting or vacuous storytelling. And another contemporary complained that some people have the habit of exchanging gossip, turning the occasion into empty frivolity. Shame on them. In theory, though, the priest should have been onto a nice little earner. 
His income would come from three sources, from offerings, endowments and the much-hated tithe. The tithe was a church tax, 10% of everything the community produced, and its collection was rigorously, consistently and sometimes brutally enforced by the church. The trouble was that other people realised that the position was worth exploiting, and so we get a practice of farming, just like tax farming. Some priests managed to collect a number of parishes together and get a very poorly paid vicar to do their work for them, for a pittance, and pocket the rest of the income for themselves. Monasteries did exactly the same on an industrial scale, often taking over churches from a number of nobles. The crop of all this farming were rich monasteries and poor village vicars. The village priest, of course, should have been completely chaste, but the real situation continued to be somewhat less than the ideal. Gerald of Wales wrote, The houses and the huts of our parish priests are lorded over by their mistresses and full of creaking cradles, newborn babies and squalling children. Actually, though, this is progress. In the 11th century, the average parish priest was married with a lot of children just like everyone else. But the remarkable reform movement meant that the position was very much changed and it was far less common. English common law now held that children of priests were by definition illegitimate. One symbol of the change is that a euphemism is now needed for priests' wives and they become known as vicaria, or literally, companion of the hearth. At the other end of the scale, abbots, bishops and archbishops were major lords of the land. They were very much the equivalent of barons and earls, magnates in just the same way as lay nobles. So choosing the right ones was an absolutely crucial decision for the king, hence the struggle with the Pope over lay investiture. It meant that the king would choose someone he knew and trusted as often as he could, and this often meant promoting a clerk who had excelled in a position in the royal household. Over our period, 66 of 145 new bishops are clerks from the royal household. This meant that the church offered more opportunity for social advancement than any other walk of life. Becoming a successful merchant, for example, might make you money, but it didn't bring you social status. Obviously there are limits here, and if you're a peasant you can just forget the whole thing, but if you're an ambitious freeman, or the third son of a minor noble on a trip to your local careers advisor, you could expect to get a leaflet about joining the church. The most famous example of this kind of advancement was Thomas Beckett, who went from lowly clerk to Archbishop of Canterbury, and then on to sainthood. The regular clergy, the monks and nuns, were knights of Christ. Their role was to keep watch against spiritual wickedness, and they kept this watch by engaging in a continual round of services and prayer. They committed themselves in principle to a strict life of fierce discipline and obedience. By the end of our period, most monks were people who had made a conscious commitment to the life, but this hadn't always been the case. Traditional monasticism had assumed that large numbers would begin life as child oblates, where a family made a gift of their young son or daughter to God, making at the same time a gift or dowry to the monastery. The monk and chronicler Odric Vitalis reflected the pain of this practice when he wrote, I did not see my father from the time he drove me into exile like a hated stepson for the love of the Creator. Since then 42 years have passed, during which time the world has gone through many changes. I often think of these things. By the end of the Angevins, things had changed. A succession of popes fought against this practice and in the end insisted that no boys under 14 or girls under 12 could make a binding commitment. And the practice began to die out. The monks' day started with a service at dawn with lords, say 5 o'clock, and then at the first hour of the day. This is prime, so say 6am. Note first of all that medieval men counted the hours of the day differently to the way we do. They had more than one system, actually, but the main approach would be to start the day with first light, which would then be prime. 
and then they would count on from there. Obviously, this means a different start time in winter to summer. So the service at Prime was followed by services at Terse, the third hour, or nine o'clock. Sext, the sixth hour, i.e. twelve noon, in our parlance. And then there was Noon, the ninth hour. Somehow, Noon got transferred to our Noon in the middle of the day. And anyway, you've got the principle, so so on. And in total, eight services ending at two o'clock in the morning with matins. And it wasn't just lack of sleep that made life hard. The food wasn't great either. The monastic rule forbade monks from eating meat, and since most monks were recruited from the nobility, this was simply not supportable for any but the most committed. So the cunning monks found a way round it. The rule very specifically said that they were not allowed to eat meat in the refectory. So, they built a new room, and they didn't call it a refectory, calling it instead the Misericord, or Place of Mercy. A few days a week, monks were able to slip out there for a bit of meat. A further hard discipline was the rule of silence. Monks were only allowed to communicate by signs, though in reality there's little doubt the rule was commonly broken. Young monks of our day, wrote one monk, relax in idle sloth and laziness, trifling signs and empty chatter. And now we get to that all-important question about monks and their pants. I think that together here we have unearthed one of the great unanswered historical questions. In terms of overgarments, the monk could wear a tunic which hung from the shoulders and was tied at the waist by belt. The tunic, incidentally, varied in colour according to the rule. Benedictine wore black, Cistercians white, for example. Over that they'd wear a scapula, a piece of wide woollen cloth with a hole for the head and with a cowl attached. They'd wear shoes, of course, and woollen stockings. It's a great look. And under the tunic? Well, I was assured that they wore a pair of woollen breeches. But look, I then came across an occasion where Walter Mapp recounts Henry II averting his eyes when a monk fell over to avoid seeing his bare buttocks, which would strongly suggest a much more relaxed arrangement. So I'm sorry, I have no proper answer for you, and to be honest, I don't really want to spend any more time thinking about what went on under a monk's habit. Really. Despite the hard life, monasticism was very much part of the explosion of ideas and change in the 12th century. The number of monasteries and monks increased enormously. In 1066, there were 50 monasteries and about 1,000 monks. And by 1215, there were over 700 houses and over 13,000 monks and nuns. And the number of different rules also grew, with the arrival of the Cistercians, Augustinians, Safaniacs, Gilbertines, Tyrannensians and many more. There were far more monks than nuns. The number of nunneries was less than a third of the number of monasteries. But nonetheless, the growth in both was dramatic. Some of the new orders that bridged the knightly and monastic ideals were the famous Knights Templar and Hospitallers. These guys are so famous and there is so much poop and myth built up around them that really there's not much point in me talking about them, but that would be a missed opportunity, wouldn't it? The Order of Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon, i.e. the Templars, was founded by Hugh de Payan and Geoffrey de Saint-Omer, officially endorsed by the Pope in 1129. Now, the new kingdom of Outremer was by no means secure throughout its history, and the order was founded to protect the kingdom, but more specifically to protect the lives of pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem. The Templars were free of all taxes and laws. They could go anywhere they chose, and they were answerable only to the Pope. They were, without doubt, successful and skilled warriors. At the Battle of Montgisard in 1177, for example, 500 of them helped a few thousand soldiers defeat Saladin's army of 26,000. The combination of knight and monk was incredibly popular. It quickly became one of the most patronised of charities and fabulously wealthy, and this was as true of England as anywhere else. 
but with the loss of the Holy Land their importance declined. However, they developed a remarkable financial function. This had grown out of the service they offer pilgrims, who could deposit all their money with Templars before they set out from, say, Great Snoring or Farley Wallop, get a chit, and get all their money from the Templars when they arrived in the Holy Land, which in a way was the first checking account. The Templars used all that wealth to lend money to the rich and powerful. By the 14th century, the French king owed them so much money that he decided he had to get rid of the whole order, and he managed to force the Pope to close them down on the dubious grounds of heresy. The pilgrims protected by the Templars were part of a religious system which held that all human beings had sinned and needed to be cleansed by confession and penance. And there's a nice clear set of structured ways to clear yourself of whatever sins you might have. There are three steps. Contrition of the heart, confession of the heart and affliction of the flesh. Penance could be vigils, fasting, giving alms, that kind of thing. The point was that human beings were not perfect but they could escape the consequences of their imperfection if they followed the rules. One of the more dramatic forms of penance was the overseas pilgrimage. Mostly, of course, people went to the shrines that were all over England. But the further you went and the more arduous it was, the bigger sin you could wash away. So for a real corker of a sin or a series of smaller ones, overseas was the thing. There were three main destinations, Jerusalem, Rome and Santiago in northern Spain, and all social levels took part. Such a pilgrimage was a defining and outstanding moment in a person's life, and it could take months or it could take years. But the most remarkable thing about the medieval church was its unity, and its ability to unify. Yes, I think there was a sense of England and Englishness, but the medieval Englishmen identified themselves of a bigger entity called Christendom. There was one Catholic religion. The clergy all followed the Pope's decrees to a remarkable extent, despite the odd tussle with the king. There's almost no heresy in England during this period, and the only significant heresy on the continent, the Albigensians, was brutally and thoroughly crushed. Christendom was a more united and well-defined place than any federation of European states can hope to be. So that's it for this week. Next week, we'll continue our survey of 12th century life by looking at the medieval village and the life of the peasantry, and we'll talk a bit about 12th century economy. Thanks again very much for listening. Please leave any thoughts or comments on iTunes, Facebook or the website and hopefully you'll join me again next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.